The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. Neuroscientists and cognitive scientists have made enormous strides in understanding the brain and how we learn. But little of that insight has filtered down to the way teachers teach. Our guest applies this research to the classroom for teachers, parents, and anyone interested in improving education. Drawing on research findings, as well as her combined decades of experience in the classroom, she equips readers with the tools to enhance their teaching, whether they're seasoned professionals or parents trying to offer extra support for their children's education. Our guest has gone from being a math-hating linguist trained at the Defence Language Institute to become a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan. Together with her colleague, Terence Sainowski, she created Learning How to Learn, one of the world's most popular massive open online courses. Amongst a library of other achievements, she is also the inaugural innovation instructor for Coursera. It is a great pleasure to welcome author of multiple courses and titles, including her latest book, Uncommon Sense Teaching, practical insights in brain science to help students learn. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Barbara Oakley. Welcome to Inside Learning. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I admit it's, it's good to hear you again. Fantastic to be with you again. And welcome to our audience. Welcome to Inside Learning podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Center in Trinity College, Dublin. I'm your host, Aidan McCullen, and it's a great honor to have to got to know Barbara when she so kindly wrote a magnificent endorsement for my book, I'm forever grateful for that. Barbara, I mentioned to you off air, I'm signed up and taking the Coursera course based on this latest book as well. I absolutely love it. Well, we had a lot of fun making it. And what I think is so exciting is a lot of the information is critical for teachers, but it's never been shared before. And so it's it's so practically useful. But these insights about, for example, the different pathways that the brain uses to establish long-term memories for whatever is being learned and how those different pathways influence how well a student could do in class. I mean, this is really important information. So it was just a, it was just a fantastic experience to be able to share about it. We often talk about on this show or in life in general about the need for students to learn how to learn students of any age, but Also, as you said there, teachers are not taught how to teach, and that's absolutely core. That's the flip here on this book, because you have had a book called Learn Like a Pro, another one, Learning How to Learn, and also that Coursera course I mentioned in the introduction. But this is a flip. This actually goes to the teacher to show for for lots of different things. For example, how students often give up on their studies, and it's not because they don't have a growth mindset like we're so often led to believe but because they honestly don't know how to learn. And your own struggles in learning have taught you this lesson and it changed the course of your life. They really have. I know when I look at the teaching profession, the teachers are taught how to teach. The, the challenge is a lot of the ways they've been taught have grown over the last you know, few centuries. And modern neuroscience is overturning some of the insights that the teachers are conventionally taught. So that's why we call the book not just common sense teaching, but uncommon sense teaching. 
And, and I think it's what's really important is that many teachers today are teaching to a, a wide variety, a diverse group of students within their classrooms. And this is, in some sense, different than past, um, you know, years past, where students were pretty uniform within a given classroom. Now it's very diverse. How do you reach out and accommodate all students without driving yourself crazy? So these are the kinds of things that we talk about. During the pandemic, we were forced to do way more virtual facilitation, way more virtual keynotes or learning or teaching. And one thing I always found really interesting from virtual facil facilitation when I run workshops is how the virtual world can unlock latent knowledge and insights from people who would not normally speak up in a physical work environment. And we're seeing this more and more with students throughout the learning world as well. They're having a voice because they're comfortable in their environment. I think that we're going to see post-COVID that online learning is going to take much more of a prominent place long-term. I mean, we will return to classrooms, but it, it's beginning to come clear that, that online learning has its own advantages. No method of teaching is the perfect method of teaching. I mean, even face-to-face -face isn't good for people who are, are rather shy and might, might not want to be uh, you know, so interactive as with a face-to-face -face classroom, and they can begin to blossom online. But I have to tell you about one of my favorite athletes of all time is, uh, his name is Julius Yego, and he was from Kenya, and or is from Kenya, which is known for its long-distance runners, but he always wanted to throw the javelin. So he, but there were no javelin throwing coaches in Kenya and he couldn't afford to go overseas and study. So he just started watching great javelin instructors um, on, on YouTube. And 98% of the time, just by watching these great instructors and going out and practicing, watching, practicing what he became the world champion in throwing the javelin. So I, I think what that shows us is a lot of different things, but one of it is that you can learn so many things online that you, you could never normally uh, have the opportunity to even learn. And you can also learn the kinds of things that people say, oh, you could never learn a physical sport online. And so I, I just think these kind of, Julius Ego uh, leads the way in showing us uh, opening a new world for the kinds of things that can be taught to people, not only face-to-face, -face, but online. So let's bring it then to the teacher, because you've learned lots of things yourself, you've, you, and you expose them then in this book as well. What are some of the themes you have identified to teach inclusively in a diverse classroom, where students have a wide range of abilities, but also in the same classroom, the teacher is time-strapped and under pressure? So one of the biggest um, factors to be aware of is that people have various working memory capacities. So that working memory capacity is like how much information you can hold in mind temporarily at one time. Some people can hold a, like 
eight, nine pieces of information. And, and I, I realize I'm being a little amorphous with pieces of information, but like you can hook eight or nine numbers or ideas in mind all at once and, and interweave them together and work with them. Whereas other people may have like three things they can hold in mind. I know for me, I, I can hold about one thing in mind until I've had my coffee in the morning. But pe- people often think that having a high capacity working memory is that's the be all and end all because it is easier to move things into long term memory uh, if you have a larger working memory. But each type of learner, I call high capacity working memory race cars and lesser capacity working memory, I call hikers. Both a race car and a hiker can get to the finish line, but the the hiker gets there much more quickly, but everything goes by in a blur. For a hiker, they go much more slowly, but they can can look, uh, they can reach out and touch the leaves, smell the pine in the air, hear the birds, it's a completely different experience and in some ways much richer and deeper. So, so there are Nobel Prize winners who are hiker learners who learn a lot more slowly and with difficulty, but they see the, the things that the, the race cars miss. So it, it's incumbent upon us as a society with our teachers to help bring up both the race cars and the hikers, because both have value to add with their different types of um, intelligences, so to speak. So that's what we uh, um, teach about in Uncommon Sense Teaching. How do you scaffold information so that those with lesser capacity working memory, which I include me amongst those, uh, the hikers, how do you scaffold your instructions so that they can uh, learn at the same time as those race cars? And often uh, a good way to do that is breaking your your material up into smaller chunks and ensuring that those, those hikers have more time to practice. But with that practice, they can become as good or even better than the uh, race cars. It reminds me of a phenomenon that happens in sport. And because you mentioned this, I thought I'd bring it to mind. It being my background, I saw this all the time where if a kid was a late developer in sport, often it would be too late. And what I mean there is when the coaches put energy into them at a young age, they get self-belief, they get applauded by their parents or their friends and they believe they're good and you know this idea of the pygmalion effect that they actually go and create a better version of themselves but the real tragedy is the opposite the golem effect where they don't think they're any good and this is such a common problem both in sport but also in education when a kid develops a belief that they're not very good and they almost give up versus this is why i'm such a big fan of your work i'm such a supporter of it and I want to bring it to the world in any way I can because it's so important for kids to know early that it may not be just the way they're it may be the way they're learning that's wrong it's not them they're not broken that is so true and and not only are they not broken but that if it's harder for them to learn that they can actually learn it more deeply 
I remember I, I'd struggle in my engineering studies. I, I would spend, for something that uh, a normal engineering student might spend an hour on, I could easily spend five hours just sweating on trying to understand it. But then right before the test, who's coming to me to explain what's really going on? It's those race cars who kind of race through it and they just didn't quite, you know, get a lot of the things that can be gotten if you really sweat and struggle with what's going on. We talk in business about the whole idea of psychological safety, where it's okay to say, you know, I don't understand or I disagree. You see that, I'm sure, in the classroom where kids are afraid to say they don't got it and afraid to tell the teacher, no, I don't understand, because the teacher is also under pressure to deliver their curricula. Oh, yes. This Sometimes it's simply a question, like for me, I couldn't keep up with instructors. So I most of the time did not understand, maybe after the first 10 or 15 minutes of instruction, I was just taking notes and I would have to just go off on my own and, and try to go back through and begin to understand it. I couldn't raise my hand because otherwise I'd be like every two minutes. Well, wait, why'd you do that now? No, you're going too fast for me. And this is why I just love online learning because you're watching a video with an explanation. And as long as the explanation is pretty good, which it definitely can be if you pick the right material, you can pause it and think about, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. And you can't do that in a regular classroom. So I think, you know, one of the great things for us hiker kinds of learners is uh, is the growing availability of good online materials. And like you talked about, like, for example, learning to learn a new sport, when you can visualize it. And I, what I love about, say, the course that I'm taking, your course at the moment, is you not only visualize it, it's not only you and your colleagues delivering the course, but the words are below. So if you want both that, so you have the audio, the visual and the text. So you're hit from every angle. And then if you go and read the book and then the great pleasure I have is now interviewing you and I have developed questions that ensures the learning. If I don't learn here, I need to be hitting the head. <laughs> I've, I'm coming at it from every angle. But I, I wanted to come to um, one of the, the great outputs of your work is to help students to remember information for the long term. So it's not immediately forgotten straight after a test. And I often visualize students inhaling knowledge. So they're collecting dots rather than uh, connecting dots. And they inhale the knowledge long enough to get through the test where they breathe it all out and dump it on a page, but then it's forgotten forever. And that is not the whole principle of learning at all. That's right. And one of the fun things about making, it's almost like you're making a little movie uh, or a series of vignettes that are altogether the equivalent of a movie. So what we do to talk about the story of cramming and why cramming is temporarily in, temporarily effective, but, but in the long run is really ineffective. And we tell a story of the parable of the choir. And we don't just tell it because, of course, we can actually show our choir. And, and what's really happening with cramming is your working memory is getting information from the teacher, the student's working memory, is getting that information, whether they have high capacity or low capacity, that, that information is feeding off from working memory 
to the hippocampus, which is kind of an indexing place. And it's simultaneously that information is going from working memory into long-term memory, but very faintly. So what's happening is you can think of it like a choir. So hippocampus is is like this, just a glib little guy, and he just he forgets things really quickly, and he thinks he knows it all. So he he just is very um, superficial, shall we say? And then you can think of the neocortex, which is long term memory, as we call her neo. And we say Neo is kind of scatterbrained because it's true. So, you know, I mean, the, the information she stores is scattered all around her brain, all around the brain. So each of our two characters has these uh, individual quirks that are problematic. But when they both get together, they actually can help one another. So what Hip, the little guy, does is he gets that information from working memory And then whenever working memory stops teaching, you know, the conductor stops uh, stops, uh, conducting the orchestra, so to speak, that the little hippocampus hip, he turns around and he he sings to Neo, the neocortex, and helps her practice with all those new links that she's creating. And and so what happens if he's got enough time to practice with her, you know, in bits and pieces here and there, it doesn't have to be continuously. Like when you go to sleep at night, hippocampus is working with Neo uh, to help her practice those new connections. That's how she learns. That's how your long-term memory forms. And in the end, the hippocampus, hip, that glib little guy who's very uh, superficial, he forgets what's going, what he had learned, but Neo learns it really well. And she can sing those songs. She's got them. But you need that time for Hip to practice with Neo. And those are the times where, for example, you, you might have a little break in class. And you're saying, turn to your neighbors and talk about this. You're not getting giving input for those few seconds that, that you're turning to your neighbor, or you're riding home on the bus. You're not getting real input into uh, working memory. So when you're not getting input, that's when the brain can consolidate the learning, and it's consolidated learning that was is what stays in the long run. If student crams the night before a big exam, they stuff it all into hip. He's a glib little guy. He can hold kind of a lot, but he's very forgetful. So it all falls out of hip uh, as soon as the test is done. And poor Neo is left with no capability to really practice with the material. And so you don't have a long-term memory uh, created about those materials. And this is why cramming can be effective in the short term. But if you're trying to build a knowledge base for the long term, uh, you really want to have more time. So HIP has more time to practice with Neo and really build those long-term structures in the neocortex. That made so much sense to me, Barb, because I recalled my equivalent to the SAT over here in Ireland. We have a thing called the Leaving Certificate. And during that period of time, I was training. So I'd study for 45 minutes, maybe an hour, 
And then I'd stretch or I'd do a small exercise every so often. And my, my whole idea in my head was to actually stretch. So I'd actually become more flexible for this career, this budding career in sport that I had. And then I formed this opinion that, oh, I, I'm, I have a great memory, but this is why your work's so important. I didn't know, I just stumbled upon this, that what you're talking about, hip on Neo, where it was the opportunity for the learning to seep in. I often think of it as a marination period. Yes. And, yes. and it was just happening. And, and I really hope that your work gets to as many people as possible, because if kids know that and they can be deliberate about it and create the opportunities for Neo and hip to work together, it can totally change their own concept of learning. So I just absolutely love it. I have one last question. I know you're under time pressure today. This one is to do with the virtual learning world. We've said already how great it is. It can unlock latent potential. It can give people the opportunity to rewind and watch material over and over again. But it also can present some issues like ongoing motivation and engagement. What are some high level tips you have for us there to keep both the students engaged and perhaps the teacher as well? Okay, so in a nutshell, uh, motivation arises from a lot of different sources. One of those sources is uh, the dopamine molecule. So, so what dopamine it, it is kind of, it kind of comes in two flavors in the brain. One is tonic. The second is phasic. Tonic dopamine is like dopamine that's sort of drifting around uh, in your brain, and this dopamine helps you with motivation. So often the, the thing you're motivated to do, the closer it gets to you in time, the more motivated you, you can become because of this tonic dopamine. So if you're, let's say you want to get a, a diploma, so you're working towards that, that's long-term motivation that really can help you. Um, but what, what you can do to help improve your motivation is to try to think of some goal that is like a temporary goal that you really want to meet, as well as thinking about this long-term goal. What that really will do is it will physically help increase that tonic dopamine in your brain. So for example, I once had a student who had worked at a chicken farm in Maryland during the summer. And you know, a chicken farm it's not this pleasant place like you might imagine <laughs> from the 1800s. It's this gigantic warehouse of, you know, chickens and it smells, it's not good. And so what he did for his engineering studies was he put a picture of a chicken farm, you know, the inside of a chicken farm in on his computer so that whenever his attention will flag or something, or he'd be like, I can't do this. He'd look at that picture and go, yeah, but I don't want to go back to working on a chicken farm. So, that, so that's one way to motivate. Now, the other way for teachers to help motivate is to make use of that phasic dopamine, that other flavor. Phasic dopamine arises due to unexpected rewards. So, so like if you surprise a student with something that's kind of good, like let's say that you, you um, um, when you're beginning your class, you get a really good hook, like, like a thriller 
um, so that it, it, I mean, like in engineering, what we often do is we're going to teach today about Bayes' theorem. So we just present everything about Bayes' theorem and we're very logical. We don't start with a hook, you know, sort of like uh, I was just diagnosed with something. And um, so what is the probability that this diagnosis that I have uh, a, a malignant cancer is actually true. What are the chances of that? Wouldn't you want to know that? And if you can hook your students, when they see what that will do is that will start kind of this, this phasic dopamine will kind of be out there. And, but when you answer the question, when students figure out what the answer to that was phasic dopamine squirts all over the brain and the 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 neural the neural thinking path that led to them being able to understand the solution that they were curious about actually builds stronger connections because the, that phasic dopamine goes in and, and helps strengthen those connections. So this is why as teachers, we want to hook our students. Now, teachers often have the, the unfortunate idea that if we always make our learning fun, it's going to make our, our students love the material. This is kind of like saying, well, I'm going to teach a student uh, how to play guitar by having them do air guitar all the time because it's fun and it's easy and, and all this kind of thing. And, and good learning doesn't work that way. People, students begin to love the material when they begin to get good at it. So sometimes you have to put the cart before the horse. You have to sort of like motivate through any means necessary to kind of get those fundamental ideas in mind because once they have those fundamental, that initial schema, learning starts to become easier. Once you have some neural structure, it's easier to add more and it starts to become more fun. So sometimes you just kind of have to plow through the, and do what you can to motivate each day. But just know that each day, as you're building that step-by-step -step structure, you are getting students closer to where they will begin to uh, see the intrinsic beauty of what you're teaching. There is so much intrinsic beauty in your work, Barbara. It's always a massive pleasure to talk to you. I know you're under time pressure now. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your courses, etc.? Um, all they need to do is go to my website, which is barbaraoakley.com. So it's pretty easy to find. And there's my, my latest book on common sense teaching. And there's uh, a massive open online course that's free that goes along with that. Um, and actually, if you just want to take the course for free, that's you can start right there. And, uh, and we play very fair. You don't need to have anything else, but uh, you can really enjoy as you're learning about the materials. But then there's learning how to learn, which is the old standby with millions and millions of learners in it. And there's also a brand new shorter course that I've done called Learn Like a Pro, which is on edX. And, um, and so there's lots of material uh, for everyone, and whether you're a learner or a teacher. And uh, I hope that you all enjoy. And I thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always such a pleasure. Author of Uncommon Sense, Teaching Practical Insights and Brain Science to Help Students Learn 
It's always a massive pleasure, Dr. Barbara Oakley. Thank you for joining us on Inside Learning, brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Next on Inside Learning, we are joined by Innovation Services team lead with the Learnovate Centre, Peter Gillis. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Aidan. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And we just both listened to that episode with Barbara, and you had some thoughts to map some topics she spoke about to trends that you are seeing in your work with Learnovate. And in particular, some thoughts were sparked by the story of Julius Yego. In looking at the landscape post-COVID, which Barbara was doing, she leverages this story of Julius Yego, the Kenyan long-distance runner who taught himself to throw the javelin by looking at videos of experts. The idea that Julius could access expert models easily and online in some ways shows the great leveler online can be in terms of access. I mean, imagine if Julius had tried to visit these experts and had to pay for their training. So online really facilitates access. In Learnovate, there are two pressing aspects to this story that we see emerging. The first is around this idea of leveraging technology to improve access. This in turn has challenges. In a lot of cases, those who may struggle to access education are often those who have little access to quality technology and good connectivity. Now, we know there's no silver bullet, but it's an area that we are focusing on and even focusing on more as we move forward. So the second is around this apprentice-type approach to teaching and learning. The case of Julius really is from the social cognitive uh, space, you know, learning vicariously from experts or models, as it will be termed in social cognitive. And there's currently a groundswell across many industries, including those kind of traditional professions where there is an identified and dramatic gap between the traditional academic curriculum and the other tech, data, and soft skills required to be effective in these jobs. And this gap is exaggerated by the fourth revolution, where technology is automating a lot of the traditional time-consuming tasks. So this apprentice-type approach is emerging as an alternative, and indeed, as Barbara points out, can really be facilitated well online. Of course, in Julius's case, it was necessary for him to self-correct based on the models. And that is an aspect that can be scaffolded better in a structured environment, but still facilitated online. I love that story. And you pointed out there fantastically, because actually I thought about my own experience in sport and what I would have done to have the expertise that's online. I, I mean, we really have no excuse. I mean, you can find anything, even for a lot of stuff for free out there in order to learn and then add that to your own learning. But as you say, the feedback loop to go, am I doing it right, becomes increasingly important. But one of the the great analogies we both enjoyed was, and Barbara's a, a master at this, is HIP and NEO, referring to the collaborative work that must take place between the hippocampus and the neocortex to successfully code input from working memory to long-term memory. And you had some further thoughts on this. I really like Barbara's analogy of HIP and NEO. And from a psychology perspective, she's bringing some piece of personality to something that is very much embedded in psychology, the idea of uh, working memory and the interaction between working memory and long-term memory. And it's that action that really qualifies, you know, how good the learning transfers. I would briefly add that, of course, with humans, you know, we're all about us. So to use Barbara's choir analogy, if hip and neo were big fans of the blues and hip is singing operatic arias to neo, it's going to be a bit more challenging. 
So in effect, what I'm saying here is that we use self-reference and prior experiences to facilitate that transfer in a more effective way. And if we're cognizant of that, we may be able to work a bit better to ensure good transfer. A final point was Barbara's reference to student engagement and student motivation is very relevant to your research at the Learnovate Centre. And even more so, as we all know, the increased need for remote working and indeed remote learning. Barbara gave us some nice insights into motivation. And a small point I'd make is, of course, she did draw a distinction between engagement and motivation. But in terms of motivation, she talked about the tonic and the phasic dopamine effects. And tonic is that kind of sustained motivation, whereas phasic has a lot more to do with the situational motivation. And she spoke about the student with the picture of the chicken farm on his screen, not a pleasant place, to remind him to study because he didn't want to go back to the chicken farm. I would also recommend that in sort of practical teaching terms, people should have a look at Keller's work, his ARCS model, A-R-C-S, as a way of supporting teachers to teach through a motivational lens. ARCS, I could talk about here for about an hour or so, to be honest with you, but it's an acronym for gaining students' attention, showing them the relevance building their confidence, and then offering them opportunities of satisfaction. And an awful lot of that aligns to what Barbara was talking about. The area of student motivation is one that's very relevant to our research at LearnAvate. And of course, it's heightened with the need for remote working and learning. So in a true innovation sense, when we took a look at this, we started with the problem. So what is the problem? Is it a lack of motivation or apathy? Now, They imply sort of that it's a lack, but actually it can very often be the negative form of motivation, which is amotivation, strongly held beliefs within ourselves and often situational. By situational, I mean, maybe you've had a great time in art class and you're feeling good, but you're heading into a double maths class and it's all going to change. So amotivation has four subsets. Students believe they do not value what's on offer. They don't believe they're able to achieve that outcome. They believe they are not capable of putting in the effort required to achieve the outcome. And finally, they believe the tasks are boring or not worthy. So in our research, we're looking to see if we can profile which amotivation areas are potentially holding a student back. And then what targeted support could we bring to alleviate these negative, strongly held beliefs? It's important that people listen to Barbara's last section. There is a difference between fun and learning. Learning does require effort. That's just a fact. And it can be enjoyable and rewarding. And of course, it can be punctuated with fun. But at the end of the day, getting hip to sing to Neo takes effort. Peter, for those people who are interested in some of the topics you talked about, some of your work in innovation, where can they find you? I'm at the LearnAvate Center. The email is peter.gillis at learnovatecenter.org. A lot of our information is on the site. A lot more of our information is available through our members' site. And if you're interested in membership as well, get in touch with us through any of the members of the team. And that's it for another episode of Inside Learning, brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Our thanks to Innovation Services team lead with the Learnovate Centre, Peter Gillis. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aidan. 
Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.